You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your copy of God's Word, will you grab that and go with me to the book of Genesis? Genesis chapter 3 is where we will be this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. You'll find some Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. You're welcome to take one now and use that to follow along with us today. We'll be looking this morning at Genesis 3, verses 1 to 24, and a couple of passages in the New Testament as well. But to get us started, I want to read Genesis 3, 1 to 7. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for His people, so listen carefully to these words. Genesis 3, 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Today, as you've already heard, is the first Sunday of Advent. The word Advent means arrival. This time of year, every year, we celebrate the arrival of Jesus, his birth in Bethlehem. Advent is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And this Advent season, we're focusing on the subject of forgiveness. When the angel appeared to Joseph, he said to Joseph, having some difficulties here, fellows, in the law, you want to help me out a bit? He said to Joseph, what we will find out momentarily, (laughs) this is the moment of suspense, here we go. He said to Joseph, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Christmas is about forgiveness. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God humbled himself, took on flesh, died. His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Those are the words we reflect on each Sunday of the Advent season as we celebrate communion. Christmas is about forgiveness. In fact, I'll be so bold as to say it like this. If you're not resting in and practicing forgiveness, then you're not really celebrating Christmas. Whatever it is you're doing this time of year, you might have more lights on your house than the Griswolds. You might have a better holiday party than the Cranks. But whatever it is you're doing this year, at this time of the year, if you're not resting in and practicing forgiveness, then you're not really celebrating Christmas. At the very core of Christmas is this theme of forgiveness. Why we need it, 
where we can find it, how to rest in it, and then extending it to others. This morning, as an introduction to this Advent series, we're going to focus on forgiveness, why we need it, why we need it. We must start there. Now, at the outset, I need to make a confession. This sermon will be a bit like the movie Die Hard. Probably never heard a pastor say that, I imagine. Welcome to Faith Church. Die Hard is one of those movies that many people will insist with every fiber of their being that is not a Christmas movie, right? Many of you will hear this sermon and you will walk away saying, that is not a Christmas sermon. I assure you, doubly I assure you, Die Hard is a Christmas movie and this is a Christmas sermon. The bad news must first be told you. Only then will you see your desperate need for the good news of the gospel. The angel said, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now this of course means that we are sinners in need of saving and that we are incapable of saving ourselves. Help must come from above. We have a very real and serious problem. The Bible sums that problem up in one word, sin. We are sinners. And in fact, the Bible teaches us that we are more sinful, more flawed than we would ever dare to imagine than we would ever dare to imagine. I'm gonna show, show you what I mean by that today. Now, if you wanna understand a subject, any subject, you must get back to the beginning of it. This is why in research, whatever the field, emphasis is always placed on the primary sources. So if you wanna understand Shakespeare, for example, you mustn't limit yourself to the people throughout the years who have read and talked about and written on Shakespeare. You must read Shakespeare. You must get all the way back to the beginning of the thing. And there at the beginning, you will find insights that otherwise would have been hidden from you. So let's get all the way back to the beginning. All the way back to the beginning of our problem. Here in our primary text, Genesis 3, I want us to look at the fall into sin, the results of sin, and the spread of sin. The fall into sin, the results of sin, and the spread of sin. First, the fall into sin. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Since 9-11 and the sight of the burning towers, the problem of evil has been inescapable. The human will is capable of some terribly wicked things. But why? Where did all of the evil come from? When did things start to go south and so drastically? Evil was not part of God's original creation. It was the result of rebellion against God. Rebellion that first manifested itself in the angelic realm. The Bible tells us tantalizingly little about that rebellion. But we do know this, it was led by Satan, an angelic being 
who shows up here at the very beginning of the biblical story in Genesis 3 in the form of a serpent. Now, why a serpent? Ah, because Satan never hands you his identification. This is temptation in disguise. And it's a good disguise. Back in Genesis 1, God told the man that he would have dominion over all of creation, all of the animals. This is a subordinate creature. At the time, he would have appeared safe, harmless. It's temptation in disguise. Satan's greatest success, he's the leader of all rebellion against God, and his greatest success is his deception of the human race. Here he appears as a serpent at the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. He's called the dragon. Why? Because he breathes not fire, but falsehood. He breathes lies, and that's what he does here. He comes to the woman, and he says to her, did God actually say, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So the serpent comes to the woman first, and he strikes. He strikes twice. At first, he asked the question, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden, which of course is not what God said. But Satan knows this. He was there, he heard God's command given in the previous chapter. You can eat of every tree, God said, except one. The one tree, you must not eat of it. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Satan knows that that's what God said. What he's trying to do here is plant within the woman's mind an idea an idea that will grow. And that idea is that God is a tyrant, that he's an oppressive ruler. Did God actually say you can't eat of any tree? See, if Satan can convince us, persuade us that we're trapped by God, that we're oppressed by God rather than cared for by him, then he can more easily convince us of mutiny, which is exactly what happens here. The woman responds in verse two. She says to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the one tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now interestingly, God never said that they couldn't touch the tree. So it seems that already the idea that God is a tyrant, that he has constrained them, trapped them, already the idea has been planted and it's beginning to grow. Now, before we proceed in the story here, we need to pause for a minute and ask a question about this tree that they were told they must not eat from back in Genesis 2. What do we know about this tree? What does it symbolize? What's the point? Lots of nonsense has been said about this tree over the years. Many people believe it was an apple tree, which Genesis does not confirm. Some people have argued that the fruit was the grape and the sin was the making of wine, which is absurd. What we do know is that the tree has a name. It's referred to as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now in hearing that name, we might wonder why would God withhold knowledge from his people? 
Why would God withhold knowledge from the man and the woman? And that's to entirely miss the point of the tree. God did want them to have knowledge. He wanted them to have the knowledge that he himself would provide within the context of this loving relationship he had created. The tree of knowledge is a symbol of creatureliness. It's a test of loyalty. Will the man and the woman live as creatures? Will they depend on their creator for everything they need, including their understanding of the world and their place within it, or will they seek to become independent? Will they go their own way? Will they become autonomous, self-ruling, self-serving? The tree is a test of loyalty, a symbol of creatureliness. We've seen the serpent strike once. He strikes again. Again, he says to the woman, you will not surely die. See the deception here? You will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, of the tree, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like him. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. That original idea planted that God is a tyrant, an oppressive ruler. Now the, certain, the serpent strikes a second time and he waters and fertilizes that idea. God told you that you'll die, but that's not true. The truth is he's keeping things from you. He's keeping the best life for himself. He's keeping you from your true destiny. Throw off this rule. Throw off this oppressor. Go your own way. Come with me, the serpent says. And in hearing this, the woman forgets all that God had provided. And she eats the forbidden fruit. She then shares it with her husband, and he too eats. The family fails the test of loyalty. Will the man and the woman live as creatures? Will they depend on their creator for everything they need, including their understanding of the world and their place within it, or will they go their own way? Will they become their own gods? In eating the forbidden fruit, they answer emphatically, we will go our own way. We will be our own gods. In the remainder of Genesis 3, we see the results of this rebellion, of this turning against God. The first and the immediate result of this sin is guilt and shame. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They claimed their independence and in doing so, they were enslaved to sin. On that day, everything changed. Everything between them and God, everything between the man and the woman, it all changed. Guilt, the fact and the feeling rushed into their spiritual veins. It was never the same again. Here as elsewhere in the biblical story, God uses physical things to represent spiritual truths. Their nakedness represents their weakness. They're now vulnerable. They're defenseless. They're guilty and they know it and they wanna hide their guilt and shame, but there's no way to truly hide it. They cover themselves, they hide from God, but God knows exactly what has happened. He comes to them. He gives them the opportunity to confess, but they run from God, they hide from him, they now live in fear. And when God confronts them, they shift the blame. The man blames the woman. 
The woman blames the serpent. And God has something to say to all three. In his words, to the serpent, the woman, and the man, we find additional consequences of the sin. In his words to the serpent, we find this idea of perpetual conflict that will now be a reality of the fallen world. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The fallen world will now be a struggle, a spiritual battle. God says there will be enmity or conflict between the seed or the descendants of the serpent, meaning every manifestation of evil that will come throughout the centuries between the seed or the descendants of the serpent and the seed of the woman. It's a proclamation that war is now here, spiritual war. But even as this war is proclaimed, there's also a proclamation of victory. It's a cryptic one. It's a bit unclear at this stage of the biblical story. God says, he shall bruise your head, speaking to the serpent, he will crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's a promise that one day, one day, a descendant of the woman will strike the decisive blow, will crush the serpent, will finally deal with him for good and all, though this victory will come at a great cost. But the world in which we now live, it is a perpetual struggle, a conflict, a battle against evil as a result of sin. God's words to the woman introduce pain and intimate conflict. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Pain is now part of this fallen world. Pain will accompany even the most precious moments of this life, childbearing. And this conflict, this great perpetual conflict that is out there, it will also come in here, in our home, in the context of our marriages. The marriage relationship will now be characterized by dispute with each party trying to dominate the other. It's the beginning of all marital conflict. And then God's words to the man. In God's words to the man, we find the introduction of cosmic conflict and death. Cursed is the ground because of you, God says. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man received a dose of his own medicine. God was to exercise dominion over the man, and the man rebelled. Man was to exercise dominion over the ground. Now the ground will rebel. Creation itself will fight back in so many ways. It's a battle against nature. I was reminded of our battle against nature just this week. It's the time of the year that we're all decorating our homes, right? Making everything look festive and beautiful inside and out, which we did, we did. And for a while, it was looking great. But then I noticed that in my front yard, some of my Christmas lights weren't working. So I went into the front yard to investigate, see what might have gone wrong. Everything was plugged in. But then I traced the wire from outlet to tree, and I noticed 
that some big, fat squirrel had gnawed through the wire. So here I am, trying to show the light of Jesus to my neighborhood, and even the squirrels have turned against me. (laughs) Creation itself fights back in so many ways. This world will be full of conflict, and not just conflict, the most tragic result of all, death. God says it to the man here, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now death, in the early chapters of Genesis, it must be understood in two ways. Clearly it refers to physical death here in Genesis 3.19, but there must be a second meaning because in previous chapters when God said to the man, in the day that you eat of the forbidden tree, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam does die, but not on this day. What then did God mean? Death is not just physical, it's also spiritual. What is death? All death is separation. Physical death is separation from the land of the living. Spiritual death is separation from God. In the day that the man and the woman ate the forbidden fruit, in the day of their rebellion, they died spiritually. They were cut off, separated from God. They're cast out of the garden at the end of the chapter, separated from the God who created them. It's talionic justice, you must see this, meaning the punishment fits the crime. What was it they wanted? Separation from God, to go their own way, to be their own gods, and that's exactly what they get, cast out of the garden with all of these consequences. Now as we turn to the New Testament, we discover that all of these consequences that we've just talked about, the pain and the intimate conflict, the cosmic conflict in death, these are consequences not merely for Adam and Eve, but for all of humanity. For all of humanity. We see this most clearly in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Third and finally, let's consider the spread of sin. The spread of sin. Romans, speaks, Romans chapter five speaks to this very clearly. Here Paul says, therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. He repeats the point in verse 19. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. You and I inherit from Adam and Eve a broken relationship with God. The way that they left Eden is the way that we enter this life, separated from God, cut off from Him and all that that entails. Now, if this idea strikes you as unfair, if you don't like the way that sounds, consider all of the other things we have inherited from our ancestors. I am a white man because my parents are white. I am a sinful man because my first parents were sinners. We inherit from them this broken relationship with God. Adam and Eve are the headwaters of the human race. 
If toxic chemicals are poured at the source of a river, it's not just that one spot that is affected. Eventually, the pollution rushes all the way downstream. Our problem that goes all the way back to the garden is this separation from God and all that that involves, all that that entails. Every single person is affected by sin, enslaved to it, and not just every single person, but every part of every person. We see this in another of Paul's letters, Ephesians chapter 2. Here he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the minds, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What is our state as we enter this world? We're dead. Spiritual death. The same state in which Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, separated from God. And to this, Paul adds that we are by nature children of wrath. The word nature refers to our condition the condition in which we're born. So we can retranslate this. By birth, you were children of wrath. We are sinful to the core, he's saying, and we're sinful in the crib. Now that truth is a very difficult one for parents of very young children to comprehend. If your children are two, three, or older, you know they're sinners you know they are children of wrath. <laughs> but when you first have your first child, oh, he or she seems so perfect, right? So cute and cuddly. But you know what the Bible is teaching us here? That baby, no matter how cute and cuddly he or she looks, that's a viper in a diaper. That's exactly what that is. <laughs> and sooner or later, you will experience the venom sooner or later we are sinful to the core and we're sinful from the crib the problem is not just actions it's actions that flow from a condition a condition of the heart and if the problem goes that deep then what can we do about it what can we do about it the Bible teaches us that we are more sinful and flawed than we would ever dare to imagine it's the heart. That's the source of the problem. We see this in ourselves when we think about times in our lives where we committed wrong actions and there was no good reason for them. I don't know about you, but looking back on my life, I can definitely remember times where I committed wrong actions and there was no good reason. A very famous example of this comes from a man named Theologian, a theologian named Augustine. He was a theologian in the fourth or fifth century. He became one of the most important writers in the early church, but in his adolescent years, in his youthful years, he was a pretty wicked guy, very promiscuous. In his spiritual autobiography, Augustine tells the story of his great sin. And it's very surprising to the reader that his great sin was not any of his many sexual exploits. It was a story that involved some pairs. Augustine, when he was a young man, decided that he wanted to commit the act of theft. So he gathers some of his friends, and one night they trespass on a neighbor's land. The neighbor has this great big pear tree, 
And Augustine and all of his friends steal just tons and tons of these pears, but then they take the pears and they throw them away. They don't even eat them. They throw them to the pigs. And as Augustine reflects back on this event, he identifies it as his great sin because it was in that moment that he saw the sinfulness of his heart. He stole the pears, why? Not because he needed them. He had better pears at home. There was no good reason for the sin. He threw them to the pigs. Augustine realized in that moment that he was hungry, but not for pears, for evil. He craved it from somewhere deep within him. The problem wasn't just his actions, it was the condition of his heart. And the sinful actions flowed from that. Now that's true, not just of him, but of each and every one of us. Every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve. And with this sinful heart, what can we do? What can we do to fix it? Nothing. It's not as simple as just stop sinning. That treats sin as an action. But that's not the problem. That's like telling a dog, just stop barking. Just stop barking. If the problem is deep within us, if it's in the heart, then help must come from somewhere else. We can't solve the problem. It's too deep for that. Help must come from above. And there are hints in Genesis 3 that that help from above is in fact coming. In closing, look at the very end of the chapter, back to Genesis 3 now. We have two hints here that all of these things that have happened, all of these consequences as dark as chapter three has been, we have hints of grace, hints of hope, two of them. Verses 20 and 21, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The first hint is in the woman's name. She's not given a name until this point in the story. And now she is, her name is Eve, which means life giver or mother of all living. The hint here is that the human race will continue. This is not the end of the story. As bad, as dark as it's been, the full story has not yet been told. The second hint, and even more pronounced, is the garments that God uses to cover the man and the woman. Now recall that earlier in the story, they tried to cover themselves. They tried to cover their own guilt and shame. And what did they use? Fig leaves. Now God covers them. And what does he use? Not fig leaves, animal skins. For them to be covered, for them to be truly covered, blood must be spilled. Something must die. The end of Genesis 3 is the beginning of the pattern of substitution that we find throughout the whole Bible. Sin is a real and deep evil. By no easy or cheap method can it be dealt with. For the sinner to live, for the sinner to be forgiven, for that destroyed relationship with God to be put back, for all that to happen, something someone must die in the sinner's place. We'll return to that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. 
thank you for this story passed down through all of the years to help us better understand the condition in which we find ourselves as we enter this world. We are sinners by nature, by condition, and by action. We inherit this broken relationship from our first parents. But we also see how we live out that sinful lifestyle each and every day. God, it's, it's true that we do not love you with our whole selves. It's true that we do not love our neighbors the way you've called us to. Our hearts are sinful. We see that we cannot save ourselves. We need help from above help from beyond. Father, we thank you that in your love and your grace, you sent your own son, Jesus Christ, to be that help, to do everything necessary to reconcile us to you, to transform us so that now we can live as your people. Certainly not perfectly, faithfully by the power of your spirit within us this morning as we enter into a time of communion we recall all that Jesus has done for us his sinless life his substitutionary death in our place for our sins his glorious resurrection and the promise that one day he will return to complete his plan for the world to vanquish all evil put an end to all sin and suffering and death. Oh, this is the hope of the gospel and we celebrate it together today, this first Sunday of Advent. In Jesus' name, amen.